Hello, this is Lynn Page Jose. I am a doctoral student at East Tennessee State University. And for today's podcast, I will be performing a synthesis of the first module for the course ELPA 6954, Education Program Evaluation. Specifically, I will be looking at the information contained in the first two chapters of our text, which is Program Evaluation and Introduction to an evidence-based approach. So the first chapter looks at topics related to the importance of program evaluation, and the second chapter looks at ethical issues in program evaluation. Chapter one then begins with a question. What is a program? The text identifies a program as an organized collection of activities designed to meet certain objectives. So then why evaluate a program? And the text tells us that evaluation is an integral component of any social service program with the idea being that we want to ascertain the impact of the program on the individuals that we serve. The text also tells us that program evaluation is considered by many to be the most valuable type of research, but it's only completed on a limited basis. So in thinking about the many programs that a school would have or that you would have within a school system or even on a much larger scale state and federal levels, what constitutes a good program? And we know, as the text tells us, that the term good is quite subjective and the idea of program evaluation is to move to a much more objective data-based approach. So having said that, good programs are identified as programs that are well-staffed, have a budget, have stable funding, they have an identity, they're easily recognizable, they have a service philosophy which communicates a clear message about the program, Systematic efforts are taken at empirical evaluation, and the program is based on evidence-based research. So, evidence-based research or evidence-based practice originates in medicine. However, human services are slowly moving toward integrating evidence-based practices into their daily functioning. And an evidence-based practice, as the text tells us, is an integration of the best research evidence with the clinician or practitioners or educators' expertise along with the individual or group or community's unique values and circumstances. And evidence-based practices are now used throughout education, psychology, nursing, public health, counseling, etc. So, the motivation for program evaluation uh, can be to make administrative decisions, to know if programs are quote-unquote good, to gain public support, and to be able to market the program to the public. In addition, we evaluate programs for accountability. If we as a school or a community or school system or state or nation spend our tax dollars on a particular program, we need to know, is this program effective? Is it, is it successful? Does it benefit the people it was intended to serve? Does it cause those people harm? We also need to do program evaluations in terms of evaluating performance, for example, evaluating the performance of teachers or the performance of interventions such as reading programs. 
thinking about the school in which I work, which is a pre-K through eighth grade school serving approximately 385 students, I know that we target many different areas of needs and have many programs to address those areas of need. Specifically, we target poverty through backpack programs, school supply drives, emergency meal programs, rural food drives. We target literacy through summer reading camps, RTI, special education, literacy nights, book loans. We target parent involvement through back to school nights and sports and awards ceremonies and uh, plays and arts. And then we target funding through various fundraisers throughout the year. So thinking of all these programs for this quite small rural school, it's very important for us to consider the effectiveness of those programs. Are the programs meeting the needs that we intend for them to meet? Are there some programs that maybe are not useful or not successful? And so that is something really in the field of education, especially with RTI and the new approaches that we are taking to meeting academic needs for students, that's really important for us to look at as a school. Ethical obligations uh, exist with program evaluations, um, and that is where the second chapter really comes in, where we're looking at uh, institutional review boards. And institutional review boards were developed in the 1970s to protect the rights of human subjects or human participants involved in research. And we are given from these institutional review boards or IRBs guidelines that are applicable for program evaluations within your school or uh, within various organizations. And so within this context, we know that program evaluations, um, we must have participants that are participating on a voluntary basis that are given informed consent and they understand the nature of the evaluation or the research that they understand at any time they may leave the program that they are not in any way forced or coerced into participating that their information is kept confidential and they're afforded the most privacy that can possibly be given and any risk of the program or evaluation would be kept to a minimum. And essentially the job of an institutional review board is really to stop problems before they begin. And so as someone wanting to conduct research or a program evaluation that would require institutional review board approval, a a practitioner, a student, would submit their proposal and the Institutional Review Board would look at the research objectives, the methodology that's intended, the protocols with specific attention being paid to the recruitment of participants and to the consent of participants. And if that Institutional Review Board were to find a problem within the proposal, obviously the person that was proposing the research would need to step in and reevaluate the research that he or she was proposing and revise their idea or maybe scrap the idea altogether, um, especially if it posed, you know, a considerable risk to the participants or was not ethical on some level. So having said that, we are given ethical guidelines from the National Commission 
for the protection of human subjects in biomedical and behavioral research, where we're looking at maximizing good outcomes, minimizing risk and harm, respecting the person and their privacy, and ensuring that we are not exploitive in any manner, and the procedures that are used are well considered and they are administered fairly. In addition, we are given specific guidelines as to the types of participants and uh, their needs. So all participants must be provided with informed consent. And then for individuals under 18 or individuals with an intellectual impairment or um, mental impairment, those individuals are able to give assent with their caregiver being involved in this process and being able to provide the informed consent. Then the consent forms themselves should explain the program and uh, indicate that the participant can discontinue participation. And in addition, uh, we should definitely strive for no harm as a result of participation in the study. And um, as far as protecting sensitive information, responses should be kept anonymous, and the researcher, researcher should take great care in separating personally identifiable information from the research data. And sometimes IRBs or institutional review boards are able to give exceptions or exemptions. However, those are not given in the case of prisoners children under the age of 18, or any person with any intellectual or mental disability, and then also uh, with fetuses. And so, essentially, that concludes the information from the first two chapters of the text. However, we were also provided with a couple of articles, one on Education World, which gave us a link to the Governor's Partnership Planning Worksheet, which provides us with a format or template for an objective approach to beginning a program evaluation. And then we were also given another link um, to an additional article that again outlined that program evaluations, you should be looking for a clear statement of goals, exploring factors that impact the goals, evaluating program effectiveness, and ensuring that your treatment population and your control population are as similar as possible. And then considering benefits such as budget efficiency, program effectiveness, and contributing to the overall culture of evidence. So that concludes my synthesis of the information for the first module for the course Education Program Evaluation. And thank you for listening. Hello, this is Lynn Page Jose. Today I will be completing a synthesis of the information from Module 2 of the course ELPA 6454, which includes information from Joel Spring's book titled American Education, 19th Edition. In particular, I will be looking at information from Chapters 3 and 4 of the text. Chapter 3 begins with an examination of equality of opportunity in education. It builds on the previous two chapters by revisiting Horace Mann's vision for public education. As we know, Horace Mann saw education as the great balance wheel in which all children should be provided with an equal education 
to therefore have an equal access to obtain wealth and be successful in life. However, in Horace Mann's day, as in present day, America was and still is unfortunately riddled with inequality, which the text looks at in depth. In Horace Mann's line of thinking, this equal education was the opportunity to change that. And so for schools to provide children with equality of opportunity, the text looks at three different models. The first being the common school model, in which all children from all social backgrounds are given an equal chance to succeed, and then economic competition occurs once schooling is completed. However, we know that children who come from wealthy home environments have advantages in our current time as they did in Horace Mann's day. And so this led to the idea of a common school, boarding school idea, in which the New York Working Man's Party felt that all children should be placed in a state boarding school where they would live in the same type of rooms, wear the same type of clothes, and eat the same type of food, and then, of course, be provided with the same type of education. However, this, of course, was a contra a very controversial idea and eventually led to the downfall of that party. This to me is mirrored in our present day with the wealthy taking advantage of education in terms of the college admission scandals uh, in which wealthy celebrities used their influence and their personal funding to schools uh, to allow their children into more elite academic schools that they would not have been able to have entered otherwise and then <laughs> subsequently ended up in the news and maybe prison. So uh, the second model then is the sorting machine model. And in this model, children again from all different incomes are put into a school. They are given IQ testing. So the test of basically their innate abilities to determine their future positions in life. So teachers take the information from standardized tests and group the children based on their abilities. The children are then trained or oriented toward a certain career or college based on these decisions. Then the third model the text looks at is the high-stakes testing model in which testing of what students have learned, not necessarily IQ, but of what has been taught and what has been learned begins in elementary school and follows students all the way through graduate school and on out throughout their life. And testing then is basically equated to evidence of someone's ability to perform a job. So then for the standardized testing to really create equality of opportunity, we know that the test then should not have any cultural bias. And we as educators know that that is almost an impossible task. So the text moves on to look at how the United States ranks with other nations in terms of our success academically and then subsequently economic and we ranked 25th in a 2015 report out of developed nations. So, of course, this became a talking point and, and has been throughout history for politicians. Um, as education and income relate, studies show that higher schooling levels are associated with higher income levels. However, inequality in education most definitely exists when we look at gender and race, and we know as the text points out, 
that white men earn more than all other groups with the exception of Asian men. And so African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and women are all making less than white men and Asian men. So again, you know, education is important and educational attainment is associated with a higher income level. However, that income level is not as high for other groups as it is for white males and Asian males over the course of their lifetime. So that leads us to talk about economic segregation in which we know that poor families who want the best for their children in terms of access to good quality public education cannot afford to live in neighborhoods with the best schools. And so economic segregation is a very real thing and uh, that creates problems in and of itself with regards to children having access to the education that they need to move ahead and really advance maybe out of the social class or the particular set of job opportunities that would be available to them if they were able to attend a better school and have access to a better future. So uh, we know that socioeconomic status, again, is associated with being at risk. And we know that students that repeat grades in schools, that repeating a grade is the greatest predictor of students eventually dropping out of schools. And the book cites a uh, study in which uh, 64% of elementary age children and 63% of middle school age children who had to repeat a grade eventually did drop out of schools. And so the hope is that increasing stability within the home and raising income levels could stop children from dropping out of schools. The text also then in chapter four talks about, and I found this in particular very interesting, factories that settle into areas in which the high school dropout rate is quite high. In particular, it talks about Coffee County, Tennessee, which is down the road from me just a little bit. And in Coffee County, the dropout rate uh, was 26.3%, and Nissan established a factory there. And so the thinking was that the companies really didn't care about the quality of education within the local school system because they were going to provide workers with on-the-job training, which then really complements this idea presented in Chapter 3 about creating and helping to develop workers that can be highly skilled and compete on a global chain. And the text talks about in particular that if U.S. factories can't find cheap labor, that they move to other, to other nations. And as a result of the COVID-19 crisis that we all have been experiencing, we know that this is a challenge for us as a nation with our need for basic personal protective equipment. We really were not able to access that on the level that it was needed. And this is a result of U.S. companies moving to other nations or those particular products being created in other nations and us not being able to produce them here on the level that we needed to. And so, you know, all of the subsequent problems that resulted from that. This is a really interesting way to think about how what businesses do, what factories do, 
really impacts us on a personal level. Uh, one of the things that uh, the text looks at in chapter 4 that I found particularly interesting was the declining economic value of high school and college diplomas by this educational inflation. So if we all have a high school degree and we all have a college degree, the text asks, are those degrees less valuable? And we know to some extent that is quite true um, in which skills that maybe previously or jobs previ- jobs that previously could have been done with a high school diploma, employers are now looking for a more advanced diploma or degree. So chapter four really delves deeply into human capital theory. So the money that's spent on education will cause economic growth, it will reduce poverty, and it will improve personal incomes. And so this human capital theory is kind of the basis, I think, for the chapter and our justification as a nation for the expansion of preschool programs. And in particular, uh, expanding preschool in the 1960s war on poverty, um, the creation of programs such as Head Start and Sesame Street. And the book really does a great job of talking about the Perry Preschool Study which began in 1962, and the study looked at 123 African-American children from low-income families who were considered to have low IQs, and these students were provided with access to a preschool program for two and a half hours a day, five days a week, and then with home visits for one and a half hours a week, and then they were compared to a control group and tracked over time, and what the researchers found was that the students in the preschool intervention group were over time more likely to be employed, less likely to become pregnant, less likely to be incarcerated, more likely to have a higher median annual income, more likely to own their own homes, more likely to have a savings account, uh, less likely to be placed in special education, and they were more likely to graduate from high school and attend college or receive some kind of vocational training. So, tying this back into human capital theory, if we are investing our dollars in preschool education, that investment then should return to us in terms of higher economic returns overall for us as a nation. So, the study wasn't perfect. It did have some limitations, such as the sample size being very small, and they were looking at one particular subgroup basically of the population which made it difficult to say that uh, this could be applicable to other groups. The text also in terms of talking about preschool and human capital really spends a lot of time talking about soft skills and soft skills are character traits that children have hopefully from their home environments such as perseverance and motivation and self-discipline and stability and dependability, good self-esteem, being future-oriented, and essentially their ability to stick with a task and their ability to work with others. And the thinking behind this particular um, line of thought with regards to preschool is if children from poverty-stricken environments are not taught these soft skills in the home, we can teach them through preschool programs, which will make them more successful overall. 
and then therefore make them more successful as a worker and a contributor to society. The text also looks at the family learning environment and goes into depth talking about the correlation between family factors and reading and math skills and success for students. We know that children that are read to, children that have parents that show a vested interest in their education are more likely to be successful. And so that really ties into the education gaps that are driven by socioeconomic differences between working class families and middle, middle class families. Um, this basically concludes my synthesis of the two chapters. I hope you enjoyed it. I find this text fascinating. I think Mr. Spring has so many wonderful ideas and a great way of explaining the material. And I really look forward uh, to seeing the information that you all compile on the two chapters as well. Thanks and have a good evening.